The Miriam Institute podcast with Benjamin Anthony. Israel's future in Israel's hands. Hello, friends. I'm Benjamin Anthony, co-founder of the Miriam Institute. In this episode of the podcast, you'll hear my conversation with New York Times opinion columnist Brett Stevens. Recorded in front of a live audience in Manhattan on November the 7th, 2023, at an event to commemorate a month since the Hamas terror attack against Israel, Brett discusses the alarming rise of overt anti-Semitism on American campuses and in the American public square, including a discussion about the marches and demonstrations that have expressed support for Hamas, even after the atrocities wrought by the terror organization during their bloody and murderous rampage into Israel on October 7th. I hope that you find the conversation informative, thought-provoking, and sobering. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and to leave a rating and review of the show, because doing so very much helps us to build an ever-wider audience, and I thank you in advance of your partnership in that effort. Brett, I invited you here because I am somebody who's followed you very, very closely over the years, learned from you, as I believe that everyone in this room has had occasion to do. Uh, You've spoken of late about a subject that's very, very dear to my heart and very concerning, which is the hatred of the Jewish people that is bubbling up and, and bursting out of what was to this point somewhat contained on college campuses. I want to start there and then I want to go into elected office. Um, Let's start with a with a with a question. You're you're a graduate of an esteemed university, University of Chicago. The worst Jew hatred seems to be coming out of the peer schools of the University of Chicago, the Harvards and the University of Pennsylvania's and the Cornells. And why is it why is it happening there? Well, I don't consider them peer schools. <laughs> um, look, this has been brewing for a long time. Uh, People are talking about anti-Semitism now or in, or in recent years, I've been worried about anti-Semitism for my entire professional career. And it became obvious that it was a major problem uh, when I was living in Brussels after uh, September 11th. One of the weird advantages of being a Jew named Stevens is that um, uh, you're, you, you're a spectator uh, in conversations that are not uh, uh, intended, uh, in, intended for you. I think one of the reasons it's coming up in universities is that um, anti-Semitism has always been uh, a hatred that has found a home as much in elites as it has uh, in sort of mass uh, sentiment. And we tend to think of, or there is a misconception that uh, anti-Semitism is, a, you know, there's the old saying, it's the socialism of fools. Uh, it kind of comes out of the fever swamps of the Charlottesville marchers or from other kind of you know, dismal corners of, of uh, uh, public life. But there's always been a high-flown uh, form of anti-Semitism. T.S. Eliot was uh, an anti-Semite. Martin Luther was an anti-Semite. The German universities were stuffed with anti-Semites. And things have not really changed uh, all that much since then. The, the real issue, I think, with the universities is that a set of ideologies that were not anti-Semitic on their face, but they were what I call anti-Semitic adjacent, became prevalent in academic life starting in the 1960s and and, uh, 1970s, particularly this idea of anti-colonialism that Franz Fanon, uh, a Caribbean uh, writer who wrote The Wretched of the Earth, uh, popularized. And then with people like uh, Edward Said, Mm -hmm. although he was much closer to an uh, out-and-out anti-Semite. But these, these ideas 
took root um, without a kind of uh, obvious direction of anti-Semitism, but but found found their way there. So some of some of the things that have worried me about American uh, academic life is that concepts like privilege, for example, you know, if you all of your kids who are in colleges have been told to check their privilege, right? These th these are concepts that on their face are not are not anti-Semitic. But when you stop to think about it, you think, well, it, inevitably it's going to lead in, in that way. Because if, if um, what we used to call success in America, merited success, becomes a form of unmerited privilege, then any group that has had outsized success uh, in the United States is, is going to be a, a, a target. The racialization of discourse, which has been happening on universities for years now, um, which now comes down to people being told at DEI seminars at Stanford to identify as either white or black. Also, again, not overtly anti-Semitic, but ends up shunting America, most American Jews, at least Ashkenazi Jews, into a category we ourselves would never recognize. I mean, my mother was a hidden child in the Second World War. She was hunted because she wasn't sufficiently white or Aryan as far as the Nazis are concerned. And now two generations later, her grandchildren are being told that they're white and therefore privileged and therefore, uh, and therefore guilty. Um, and the final thing that's happening is a kind of a war on um, what you might call intellectual heterodoxy, thinking for yourself. And Jews have a habit of thinking for themselves. It's maybe a bad habit, but we're impish and ironic, and uh, we like to say no when everyone else says yes, and yes when everyone else says, says no. So these, these kind of uh, anti-Semitic adjacencies are now sort of finding their, their target, but they've been looking for that target for, for decades. Now I think it's come out in a way that is only going to uh, get worse. I think we are at the beginning of this crisis, nowhere near even the middle of it. So. Growing up in the UK, I, I fell prey to a lot of anti-Semitism. Yeah. When I spoke about it in the US, people would say, well, of course, because there are many Muslims in the United Kingdom, or there's the Islamification of the United Kingdom. But I used to say, no, no, there's also centuries deep, old anti-Semitism that has now merged with, with uh, the, the, those among the Islamic faith who are anti-Semitic, those who do preach that sort of hatred. What's happening on the campuses is is this merging as well. This ultra far left liberalism has merged with this far right fundamentalism. How has that happened? Yeah, so your, your comment reminded me of the definition of a British anti-Semite. You know, it's someone who hates Jews more than is strictly necessary. Um, <laughs> it's funny, come on. Uh, um, uh, look, uh, you know, there's an expression in French that the extremes touch. And so you have, on the one hand, a, um, uh, a uh, Islamism, which is in every sense uh, fascistic, and in every other sense except for the Jew hatred, um, the opposite of what liberals and progressives uh, claim to stand for. You know, how are trans rights going in Gaza these days? Uh, uh, probably not well. How about women's rights in Egypt? Uh, not not at all well. Anything that a progressive has ever stood for and would fight to, you know, the last, uh, all, you know, all gender bathroom for, um, uh, the Islamists oppose. 
but on this one point, they've, they found common ground. And it was always interesting when bin Laden was alive, that one of his favorite, the only Jew he seemed to like was Noam Chomsky, mm-hmm. whom he would quote from time to time. In fact, if you go into uh, any academic bookstore, either as I've been at the American University of Beirut or the American University of Cairo, you're going to find the works of Noam Chomsky and all of these people who are kind of his, his minions and, and, and uh, acolytes. Um, and they've, they've found this, this very fruitful merger of the far left uh, and the far right, which you see, which I saw on, on October 8th when I went and had a look at the protests that had been organized in the immediate wake of the massacres of October 7th. Uh, you know, I, I was just eyeballing the people there, and I would say it was about 70% um, all but dissertation types from, uh, you know, the various universities from Columbia on up um, to, uh, to people who are clearly of the Muslim faith, and they had, and they had uh, uh, merged, uh, uh, merged together. And this is, this is, I think, particularly toxic because... Um, the largest, you see this in Britain, large numbers of Muslims bring mass and uh, high level uh, leftists on universities bring influence. And those two things are a particularly toxic combination, which we Jews find difficult to, um, to counter. So I, I want you to hit something that I think is very discomforting to, to Jewish people who are supportive of being Jewish and who are supportive of the state of Israel. And that is what we term the self-loathing Jews, because they're rife and rampant on the university campus. You just mentioned one, Noam Chomsky. Many people would give him that definition. If you disagree, feel free. I, 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 I dislike the term because they're, they're, the, the problem with them is not their self-loathing. The problem is the excessive self-love. I mean, there is a kind of a bottomless narcissist uh, uh, at the heart of every Jew who makes it his task in life to speak ill of other Jews. Uh, and and I mean, by the way, I've, having debated these guys uh, over the years, the uh, amount of uh, self-regard, uh, the willingness to say, I'm one Jew and I'm going to tell you what to think about being a, uh, being a Jew takes a level of chutzpah that, you know, only the Jewish people could, you know, could uh, produce. There's a reason why there is a wicked son uh, who is called upon or spoken of at every, uh, at every uh, Passover table. So you wrote uh, a, a, an essay called The Three Falsehoods About Anti-Semitism and One Truth. Tell, tell us about that. What, what were you driving at there? Well, I think anti-Semitism is a largely misunderstood uh, phenomenon in that um, to probably not to people in this room, but to, I think, most Americans, anti-Semitism simply means racism against Jews. But the racial dimension of Jew hatred is only one dimension among uh, many. There is political anti-Semitism, there is religious anti-Semitism, there is an ethnic and cultural uh, anti-Semitism. And in fact, the most potent form of anti-Semitism really is the political form. I mean, the term anti-Semite was coined by a man named Wilhelm Marr in the late uh, uh, 19th, in the 1870s, um, in order to start what he called uh, the League of Anti-Semites. It was a political movement, right? And that's, that's, Really important to understand that the goal of the anti-Semite was to oppose the political interests of the Jewish people. What is the goal of the anti-Zionist? It's to oppose the political interests 
of, uh, of, of the Jewish people. The other aspect about anti-Semitism that's often uh, insufficiently or inadequately, inadequately understood is the way in which it takes as its nature a kind of a conspiracy theory about the Jews. It's not just Jews are bad and have big noses or whatever. It's, it's, it's that Jews are conspiring against you. I mean, I would, if, if I were asked to kind of come up with a one-sentence definition of anti-Semitism, I would say that anti-Semitism is a conspiracy theory that holds that Jews are uniquely prone to use devious means to achieve malevolent ends and must therefore be opposed by all means necessary, including the use of violence. I think that in one sentence comes closer to what anti-Semitism really is and how it's actualized, how it's understood, and how it has been understood actually long before Wilhelm Marr. So what did the Jews? The Jews killed Christ. Well, they didn't really kill Christ. It was Pontius Pilate who did it, but it was the Jews who got behind it. How did the bubonic plague happen? Jews were poisoning, uh, uh, poisoning wells. What were Jews doing in uh, 19th century Europe? They were swindling honest Europeans out of their patrimony by pretending to be European when in fact they were Semites, right? The whole term Semitic is to suggest that the German Jew is actually from the Middle East. What is the anti-Zionist conspiracy theory? It's that the Jews aren't really from the Holy Land. The Jews are from Europe, and they are conspiring to swindle Palestinians out of, out of their own land. So until you understand the full range of anti-Semitism, you will fail to spot uh, many instances of it. It's why so many people have a hard time recognizing that anti-Zionism isn't different from anti-Semitism. Anti-Zionism is the essence of anti-Semitism. So I want to hit just two or three more points with you. The first one is two-pronged, though. I'd like to know how geared up you think the Jewish community is here to fight anti-Semitism. That's the first. And the second prong of that is, do you think it begins by divesting from these campuses? Is it sensible to expect Jewish people to remove funding from university campuses? Is it sensible to expect Jewish people to stop sending their kids to the best campuses in America? How, how, how viable are these ideas? So in uh, 33 minutes, my column in the newspaper to which so many of you used to subscribe uh, will, will appear, um, and it addresses exactly this point. So if, you, if you're curious, you might help pay my salary. Uh, uh, um, look, we have to start, on, on October 7th, uh, Israel and the Jewish people confronted their greatest tragedy since the Holocaust. On October 8th, we witnessed the celebration of that tragedy. We used to talk about September 12th Americans, people whose eyes had been opened by September 11th. We need to start talking about October 8th Jews. And October 8th Jews, first and foremost, know who their friends are not, right? Our friends are not in the social justice movement. Uh, where we have fellow traveled, or so many Jews have fellow traveled, uh, someone in this room put a Black Lives Matter uh, a wall sign up or, or lawn sign up. I'm sure of it, right? And Black Lives Matter is is putting up uh, tweets with paragliders uh, celebrating the quote liberation of of Palestine. Um, our friends are not the university presidents and administrators 
who issued these mealy-mouthed, carefully parsed, equivocating statements on October 9th, 10th, and with a revision on the 13th when they started getting uh, um, a, little, uh, a little worried. We ha- we've discovered that there's a universe of people who we thought we were breaking bread with and, and we're not. And so I think the goal of an October 8th Jew is to use that bracing clarity of knowing who your friends are not to, uh, to act. I mean, it used to be three years ago, the slogan was defund, defund the police. I say defund the academy, defund it. Do not, do not support these campuses. On Stanford, every third building has a Jewish name connected to it. It's the something center, it's Blaustein, Greenberg, and so on, right? But at Stanford University, they've decided that when it comes to anti-Semitic speech, they believe in free speech. But when it comes to any other form of hate speech, they think it's, they think it's hate speech. You can have, you can have uh, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with a standard for free speech, but I'm not fine with a double standard for free speech. And that's what you have, what you have now. So how do you act on it? Look, I'm looking at this room and I'm saying many, many of you, probably a majority of you have in your personal lives and your careers taken incredible risks to achieve what you have achieved. You've dreamed of something new and you've put it all on the line. We have to start doing that in terms of the institutions that we want to create and that we want as our homes. I mean, you mentioned, you start off by talking about the University of Chicago. A brilliant academic named William Rainey Harper went to John D. Rockefeller and said, I'm going to start a, a, a research university modeled on the German you know, research universities in the middle of America, and you're going to give me a billion dollars. And you know what John D. Rockefeller did? He gave it to him. And as a result, it's one of the last great universities in the world. We can do that. We can do that. There's no reason why we have to be limited to writing uh, terrific but angry letters at the president of Harvard and saying, you know, uh, uh, this is this is uh, inadequate. We have to end this addiction to what used to be the tokens of prestige in our lives. And we have to invest in new concepts, new institutions, new media, new culture, new, new everything, and say, they have to adhere to certain sorts of values. They don't have to be Jewish values, but they have to be classically liberal values. They have to be values in which every person, not the least of whom are Jews, are given a fair uh, a, a fair shake. And so th- this is, I think, the giant task of, of October 8th Jews. We built Hollywood, and then the rest of the world followed. We built investment banking, and the rest of the world followed. We built most of the great law firms, maybe this one, I'm not sure. Um, and 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 the rest of the world followed. So let's start building these new things. You know, you don't, you, you're never cool if you want to join the, the cool kids table. You're only cool when you join your own effing table and then people kind of notice that you're the coolest kid in class. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the podcast, a product of the Miriam Institute. Please be sure to visit the Miriam Institute website at www.miriaminstitute.org. There you can learn more about our gold standard tours to the State of Israel undertaken in proud collaboration with the United States Military Academies and the U.S. Army. You'll also be able to view highlights from our campus work throughout the English-speaking world, 
and to find details of our live interviews and debates that may be taking place in a town very close to where you are right now. You can also read our written commentary and analysis that is penned by top-tier experts, which we're very proud to provide to you for free. And you can learn more about how to invest in the work of the Miriam Institute by way of a tax-deductible donation. All of that and much more is available to you at www.miriaminstitute.org. Now, without further ado, it's back to the show. Many people are deeply concerned that what happens on the university campuses finds its way into the halls of legislation. And it seems to be that that's happening, and it seems to be that's happening in a more truncated fashion than, than previously. How does, how does we combat that? And what are the implications of it not being combated for the Jewish community? I, I've faced and lived with political anti-Semitism in the UK. I was amazed to see it take root and branch here. But in the UK, we recognize it. I'm not sure Americans are so quick to recognize it. Look, um, I think actually here there's, and I hate to say this, because to Jewish crowds, it repays you to be as depressing as possible. Um, there, are, there are sources of optimism. Um, one source of optimism is that in spite of the vast anti-Semitic world that we are familiar with because it's happening on the campuses that we knew as, as younger people, there's this big philo-Semitic world. Um, you know, I'm going up to, I just spoke at Vanderbilt and USC, and then I go up to Amherst College later this month. But no one has ever said, you know, Brett, we'd like you to go talk at the University of Nebraska, Right. 70,000 odd people, uh, you know, or any of these great public uh, institutions where I would bet you would find a mindset that is really disposed to support Israel. Because to normal people, you don't have to explain the difference between the aggressor and the victim. You don't have to explain the difference between wanton uh, aggression and just retribution. You have to be an intellectual to fail to see that core moral distinction or recognize that the question of who started it is a material uh, moral question. So we are not doing nearly enough to, um, to reach out to constituencies that are our friends. I mean, the only ones we are aware of are evangelical Christians, and I think a lot of Jews feel very uncomfortable with it for reasons I think are kind of ridiculous. I think it's a great thing. Um, but to what extent have we reached out to uh, Asian Americans? Uh, it's a very profoundly, fundamentally sympathetic uh, uh, constituency. I don't think we've done uh, anything, uh, is, 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 is my guess. Flyover country America, we ignore just as, just as so much of America ignores. We haven't gone abroad and tried to do this. You know, years ago, I was at a synagogue in uh, Cleveland, and it was kind of a you know, synagogue, older crowd. There was this one chi young Chinese woman who was there, sort of introduced herself. She was from Shanghai and she was getting a, a degree at Case Western. I said, what are you doing here? Um, and she said, I won't try to imitate her accent, but you know, she had a thick accent, but she said, oh, all Chinese people know Jews are the smartest in the world. And I said, oh, come on, you know, that's a terrible misconception. And she looked at me very sternly like, What's wrong with you? Um, and she said, no, 
Nobel Prize in economics, 57% Jewish. Or so, I think it's astounding, you know, chemistry. And she went down the line of, of Jewish intellectual uh, uh, achievement, half of all grandmasters, a third of uh, uh, the math prize winners, uh, and, and, and so on. And then she said, everyone in China knows this. And I thought, huh, I, I didn't know that. Um, so there are some billion odd Chinese people uh, who are potentially well inclined towards us. What do we do about it? Now, unfortunately, the government is, uh, of China is issuing you know, anti-Semitic propaganda these days. But there are people out there who, for profoundly mysterious reasons, seem to like us. And maybe we should be reaching out to them instead of engaging with, you know, fruitless and tepid debates with morons and bigots at Ivy League campuses. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, a product of the Miriam Institute. Don't forget to visit our website at www.miriaminstitute.org to learn more about our work and to invest in our mission. And please do take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and to leave a rating and review at wherever it is you download your podcast from. Until next time, it's over and out. <laughs>